Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join guest speaker Rob Terhorst with this message from August 25th titled, Life with God. For the rest of us, we're going to start with a little video and then, and then we'll go into our, our conversation. So we'll see what uh, the, uh, this video clip is. Uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning is a book called With, <clears throat> Reimagining Your Relationship with God. And it's by the author. His name is Sky Jasani. And so uh, just pay attention and then we're going to uh, expand on what he shares here. A few years ago, a sociologist studied the religious lives of teenagers. What he concluded is that most of them had a view of God as either a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. In other words, they weren't particularly interested in God himself, only what he could do for them. This really shouldn't surprise us because most religious traditions teach us to use God to achieve some other desire. For example, in many traditions we're taught that we should live under God. By obeying commands, we're told God will bless us and be on our side. The idea is to use God to control one's life and world. Life over God says following the right principles is how to guarantee a good life. In this case, we use God as the source for practical help and advice. Life from God rightly teaches that he is our provider, but that's all it sees him as. This posture makes him into a divine vending machine to give us what we desire. Life for God makes everything about God's mission in the world. It uses God to give us a sense of meaning and purpose. In each of these postures, God is used to achieve some other desire. He is a means to an end. He provides us with a sense of control or blessings or the principles by which we govern our lives or a sense of meaning and purpose and direction. And there's a truth to each of those postures. God does supply us with those things. But in the end, if we really want to experience life with God, which is the central calling of Jesus Christ, then we need to see that God is not merely the means by which we achieve our treasure. In the Christian faith, God is our treasure. The reason why a great many people in the church today are failing to experience the freedom and wonder of the Christian life is because they've never been taught to actually desire and want God. They don't treasure him. Instead, they've been taught to merely use him to achieve some lesser desire. To make sense of what a life with God actually looks like, let's break it down into three parts. Imagine someone dreaming of a new house, or a vacation, or a vintage Mustang. Life with that new car begins with dreaming about it, envisioning it, treasuring it. The same is true of life with God. We must first have a clear vision of who he is, his beauty, his goodness, and his love. When we don't have a clear vision of who God is, we're not gonna desire him, we won't treasure him. At best, we'll seek to use him to achieve something else. But in the scriptures, we're told that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, we are given a clear and ravishing vision of who God is, of his beauty, of his love, of his goodness, and his power. That explains why people were crawling over themselves trying to be closer to Christ. 
Sadly today, few people are given a clear vision of who Jesus is, even within the church. Instead, we're given some lesser vision, a vision for the church or its growth, a vision for mission or for a better life, a happier family, a more successful job. And when that happens, God is reduced once again from the end and desire of our lives to just the means by which we achieve these lesser things. But treasuring isn't enough. You can dream about a vintage Mustang all day, but in order to live with it, you must actually acquire it. After treasuring God, we must be united with Him. By Christ's death and resurrection, the sin that has separated us from God is removed, and the way is open for us to be united with Him once again. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are united again with what we treasure most. Many people have come to believe that the gospel is about how we get into heaven. But if that's the full understanding of the gospel we have, all we've done is reduce God to a means to an end again. He's how we avoid hell. But the truth is, the gospel's not about how we get into heaven. The gospel is about how people get to God. It's about being united again with Him when He's our treasure. Finally, life with God finds fulfillment as we experience Him. As with the previous two steps, this one is also made possible through Christ. By his example and by sending his spirit, Jesus taught us what a life lived with God looks like. It's not just about prayer and reading the Bible, but it's the rich and mysterious mingling of our spirit with his in ceaseless communion. Every other posture of religious life, whether it's life under God, over God, from God, or for God, they each try to use him to achieve some lesser desire. But life with God is different because it doesn't want to use God. It wants God, but it all begins with a clear vision of who he is, a vision that comes to us by his grace through Jesus Christ. And when we receive it, God ceases to be a means to an end, and he begins to become our treasure. So I wanted to begin that with that video clip because I, I felt like it was a good introduction uh, into this book um, called With. And uh, this past year, our Bible study group, who we meet every week, and we have gone through a number of different studies and, and uh, video series and, and things like that, uh, and they're good. But this last uh, study that we did together was this book, and it really stood out as being really impactful to us. And particularly because of the way he examines how each of us develop uh, a particular viewpoint of God and how that shapes our view of God and how that shapes the quality of our relationship with God um, in, a, in, a, in a particular way. And so the question that I want us to be thinking through as we have uh, worked through the, the sermon this morning is that question that he asks, and it was in the video, is this, is God your treasure? And that's the question I'd like you to be thinking about this morning. And because when I ask that question, is God your treasure? It's a, it's a layered question in the sense that for many people, uh, you know, we come to church regularly and we would say the obvious answer is yes, God is our treasure. Um, but there are many people who have searched for God and they find themselves settling for something different than what they anticipated finding in their quest for God. And perhaps God becomes a treasure of sorts uh, but we, if we were honest, we would say he's not the only treasure, and we would say he's not the greatest treasure in our lives. 
and as mentioned in the video clip, it's sort of based on a study done with youth, but uh, he says there are many people who view God as a cosmic therapist or a divine butler. And while that's uh, true of uh, teenage study, we know that that isn't true exclusively for teenagers. There's a lot of grown-ups who carry on with that line of thinking uh, of that same view of God. And as people who attend church regularly, we would say, well, I mean, that's maybe a simplistic view of God. I, I don't really have that kind of simplistic view of God. But I think if we were to examine our relationship with him, there would certainly be times where it would be true that we could describe our relationship with God as fairly transactional. That if God, uh, if, if I do this, God, would, would you do that for me or vice versa? And so it isn't particularly, as he mentioned, that we're interested in God. It's more that what he can do for us. And in this book, uh, he describes or makes that interesting observation. He sees all religions as based on uh, the idea that the world is a dangerous place. And as a dangerous place, we have all kinds of fears that come out of that. And because we want to protect ourselves, uh, it means we want to have some kind of control over our lives. And so we come up with some kind of predictable system to help us manage those fears and manage those conflicts. And in a biblical sense, we would say we would see this manifested in, in the Pharisees and what they tried to do in managing sin and, uh, and people. And so through a variety of different methods, the point of what he's saying is that we sometimes try to control or manipulate God. And he describes our relationship as having those different postures. And those postures can be somewhat helpful, but they also hinder our relationship with God. And, and the problem is that they are rooted in scripture and there is an element in truth to them, but they don't contain all of the truth. And so it, it, as he describes it, it, it inoculates. Uh, it's almost like a vaccine to some people and that they have a little glimpse of who God is, just a dose of it, but it's not the real thing. And so it kind of works against uh, the, the, the gospel and, and he goes on to explain, well, that's why so many people who say they've tried Christianity and it fails them, or it turns out to be so shallow for them, is because they don't really have the entire gospel. They just really have a, a portion or small percentage of it. And so I want to just walk again through these different uh, postures, and then, then we'll go from there. So the first one that he describes is the life under God posture. And this posture looks to uh, rituals and morality to try and, uh, and, and bargain with God so that we deserve his blessings and his favor. And the best way to maintain control uh, of our lives and to control of the, our fears is to control the God who controls the world. And so it makes sense if, if that's how you view it. And we view, uh, the, this view of God believes that if we do the right things, then God is going to cooperate with us. If we obey, then God will bless us. If we adhere to the rules, it gives us some sense of predictability about how God uh, should operate and it should get us what we want in the end. And that's fine. Uh, it's a fine approach. We would say this, it would be the divine butler approach. Uh, and it's great, except for it doesn't, you know, when it doesn't work and God doesn't really go along with our plans. And, and so it doesn't take very long for someone in this posture to say, you know, this, this God thing doesn't really work for me. And so they dismiss it and saying, well, God didn't really work for me, so I'm going to let him go. Uh, and then there's the second posture, the life over God posture, in that we don't focus on those rituals or those rules or the morality aspect. In fact, we don't really th think about God much at all, um, that God has anything to do with our daily lives. 
And, and the, the best way to explain it is to view God as that divine watchmaker who had intelligently designed the world and set his foundation in place and then really more or less wound it up and, and it's un- unfolding and, and it's just unwinding as time goes on. And so if we would operate on those principles and, and those directives that he laid out for us so long ago, things would go well for us. And we do that on an individual basis. And then we uh, sometimes in the churches, we'd say, well, if, you know, if our church would operate this way, then it would go better for us. Or if the world or culture would go this way, just operated in the way that God said, then, th- then things would go better for the world. But we gain control over those fears, not through a relationship with God, but through those laws and through those principles. And so what happens in this posture is we, we don't have a, a relationship with the God of the Bible we have a relationship with the Bible as our God and there's very little interaction or relationship required with God himself. And, and don't hear what I'm not saying that the Bible is certainly important. Um, and, and yet our faith is based on a person on the life and the death and the resurrection and the hope of Jesus Christ. Right. And it's, if our whole Christian experience depends on the Bible and the principles and the rules in the Bible, then we're missing the main character of the story. And so it's, it's difficult to say, yes, God is my greatest treasure in my life. He is, is, he is my all in all. When we would say, well, except for the fact he's just, you know, I'm saying that mentally in an intellectual assenting kind of way, because I, I believe it ought to be true. And so while the Bible is certainly helpful to us and it points us towards God and his character and his nature, it is no substitute for our relationship with him himself. And so that's that posture. The third posture is life from God. And perhaps it's the most popular posture in today's world. We would say uh, it really, it would be the consumerist gospel uh, where the gospel is all about me and that God should do everything that I would want him to do. And he should be there to meet my needs and my desires and he should get me what I want. And so we, this posture views God primarily as, as a provider and, and to be in a, not as nice of terms to say that God is that vending machine. And again, God is the, the therapist who should just solve all of my problems. And so what happens with uh, Christians or believers or, pe- or people who are seeking after God have this posture and then God doesn't meet those desires and he doesn't meet those needs. They walk away again from a shallow view or truncated view of the gospel, thinking they've tried the real thing. And, and to say that, you know, what do you say? Well, is God your treasure? It wouldn't be fair to say that because he never really was your treasure. Uh, he was really just that means to a different end to get your actual treasure. And uh, then we go on to the life for God. And this is particularly interesting. We had a lot of discussion around this in, in our stream of, of Christianity in our stream of, of church. And this posture reverses the last posture. And so it's not a life expecting all these things from God. It's saying, well, I should live my life for you. And I should live my life, do everything for you. And so it puts mission at the center of the Christian faith. And it, 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 that we, God doesn't exist for us, but we exist for him. And we would think, well, that certainly sounds true. And that sounds right. And more noble than the other ones. But life for God really uses mission to give us a sense of purpose for our lives. And the more we do for God, and sometimes it's easy to say, well, if I do more things for God, then he's going to be happier with me. And, and the happier he is with me, the better I feel about myself. 
And Sky Jethani points out that more than ever, we've, we've, we have an activist generation that wants to, uh, you know, end, end world hunger and poverty and, and reach the lost and go to the streets and, and see people saved and their culture transformed. And that is all wonderful God-ordained things for us to do. But he digs a little bit deeper in saying, but why are we doing these things? And he, he ultimately says, we're not driven out of a passion for God's name or for his renown and his glory often more often than not, we're driven uh, by a search for significance. And so pouring our lives into a mission that we think that God would, would be happy about is not the center of the Christian life. And again, last week, as we looked at the prodigal son story, which we always focus so much on the younger son, um, the older brother really makes this point so very vividly clear to us um, that he had that sense of duty and obligation to his father and he, and he thought, if I do this for the long haul, then I'll get my reward. Uh, but that's not what made his father happy. It's not what made his dad happy at all. His, he, his father wanted his sons to be with him. And so the, the older brother is the same as the younger brother and missing, uh, missing the point. Right? Neither of them wanted the father, and that's all that the father had wanted. And so he spent all those years bitterly serving away, thinking, I'm going to one day receive that share of my inheritance. And all the father wanted was for that son to be closer to him. And so it's a warning for us to grasp that, that you know, our service to the Lord shouldn't replace our relationship with him. Right? And, and again, so these are the different postures that we, we sometimes shape and influence our relationship with God in a profound way. And so there's that life under God, life over God, life from God, and life for God. And it's a simple idea that people over generations have manipulated their viewpoint of God for their own interests in one way or the other, some noble and some ignoble, right? Whether it's success or wealth or uh, selfishness or significance, uh, we have a way of, of turning God into uh, our own means. But then he goes on to say in the second half of the book, uh, he does get, that's maybe a bit dreary and maybe a bit like, oh, well, isn't that a bit, on a, you know, heavy. But he goes on to say in the second part of the book, well, there is a better way. There's a better way that actually helps our, develop a, a genuine relationship with God and, and he, he, he says, life with God, obviously, the whole point of our human existence is, is to have a relationship with the God of the universe. And so when we get a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, we no longer want to use God for our own means. And as uh, you know, he, gets, he says, it's not so much as a cognitive or intellectual exercise. It, it's something personal, that God isn't a means to an end. He is the end. He's the beginning and the end, and he's in all, and, he's, and he is everything. And so, life with God, as he said, is actually the point of the Christian story. And all of the Bible, in a sense, it's a major theme in scripture. And now again, the Bible is marvelously complex, um, but I want to just say that the life with God is a truly a, a genuine major theme throughout scripture from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, it, it is. And so I just want to highlight a few verses um, and uh, we, we're not going to get into them, but just to highlight that a little walk purview through the Bible to say this. And so again, in the creation account, we read that God walked with Adam and Eve, right? In the garden and God created people because he wanted to share himself with people. And one of the, the greatest consequences of sin uh, it is when they turned their, their, they turned their own way and wanted to do life on their own terms. The consequence is that God's physical presence was withdrawn from them. They were 
kicked out of the garden and they no longer had that communion with God. Right? And in the, in the call of Abram and into Abraham, the founder of the faith, there was an interaction, there was many interactions of God with, his, with Abraham and calling him to be who he was. And there was an intimacy there of the God of the universe reaching down to this individual person. In the Exodus story, God calls Moses, as despite being who he was and his own shortcomings, um, he promised to be with him as he confronted the Pharaoh and, and to lead the people out of uh, slavery. And then at the end of Moses' life, as he's speaking to Joshua, his successor, Moses, God tells Moses to tell Joshua, be strong and courageous as you're going to go into the promised land. Don't, uh, don't, be, don't be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then again, in the book of Joshua, after Moses passes away and they're still on the verge, uh, God says to Joshua himself, haven't I commanded you? Like, didn't I tell Moses to tell you this? Right? Have, uh, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Don't be dismayed. I'm with you wherever you go. And then in, in the life of David, as we see, there's many interactions of, of intimacy with God. And then he becomes King David. And it's no surprise that in the greatest Psalm, Psalm 23, that David writes, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which I've been in many times in my life, I don't, I'm not afraid. I don't, I don't, I don't fear that. And why don't I fear that? Because you're with me. Your presence comforts me. And that's why I can go through these situations because I know God, you've been there before and you'll be there again. Right. And then as we move into the new Testament, obviously Jesus, uh, again, in the great commission, uh, as he's saying, you know, baptize and teach all these people, all, everything I've commanded, um, go that they would obey everything I've, I've commanded you go and do this. And as you go and do this, I, I will be with you to the very end of it, to the very end of the age. So go and do this and don't just teach these principles, but as you go and do this, I'll be with you. And then he said to his disciples in another setting, and probably one that we're most uh, familiar with in John's gospel, John 14, they're talking about, well, Jesus, are you leaving? And where are you going? And what is happening? And we're so confused. He says, I'm going to ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Again, we have the Holy Spirit to reside in us. And then the Apostle Paul in the epistles to the church in Corinth, he's saying, listen, like, do you understand what has happened here since Jesus Christ has you know, taken away your sin and is in, at the right hand of the Father uh, in heaven? He says, do you not know that you are God's temple, much like the tabernacle, much like the temple? You are God's temple and his spirit dwells in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And then the Apostle John, as he opens his gospel, says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? God made his, he made his abode, he made his dwelling place, he took up residence with us um, so that he could be with us. And it says, as we've seen his glory, glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And at the end of the Bible, uh, that beautiful depiction of how God will dwell with us in the end, it says, finally, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp. They will not need the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever, right? We don't need, because God will be finally dwell with us forever. He is all sufficient. He's everything we need, right? And so 
that's just a quick overview, obviously, just to, I mean, there's many other examples we could have gone into, but those are just some examples. But if you'll notice, there of all the major characters and hanging points throughout scripture of all the major people uh, in, in the Bible have that same hammer home, that same point that, listen, this, the point of this is that God is here with us and he has made it abundantly clear that God has demonstrated over and over and over again that he wants to be known and to know his people. And so God isn't a means to an end. He is the end, the beginning and the end, the all and in all. And one of the greatest quotes, I think, of this book, he just goes to, on to capture some of the postures in their relationship with Jesus. He says, Jesus didn't merely die to inaugurate a mission. He didn't just come to tell us what to do, a life for God. He did not endure the horrors of the cross just to demonstrate a principle of love for others to emulate life over God or to appease divine wrath, life under God. While each of these may be rooted in truth and affirmed by scripture, it is only when we grasp God's unyielding desire to be with us that we begin to see the ultimate purpose of the cross. And so I just would say, you know, as we think about this idea what if we could reimagine a relationship where we, we maybe corrected some, corrected some of those viewpoints of, of who we think God is and how we relate to him in a way that we believed and, and experienced God to be in our midst and dwelling with us. And I'd say, how, you know, how does that one of the major overarching themes of the Bible, uh, that Emmanuel, God dwelling with us, how does that impact our lives? How does that, what does that do for us? And I'd say in a world that feels out of control, and you don't have to be religious to think the world's out of control. I mean, if you just watch the news for five minutes, you can clearly see um, things are not great. But uh, we know that God is in control. Uh, in, in, the, in the cosmos, we know that God is in control in the big picture. And we know that God is in control in each one of our lives individually. And as each one of us experience particular chaos in different seasons of life, God is there with us in those situations. And as believers, we have that confidence in God's abiding presence with us, right? And that should give us a wellspring of hope that in Hebrews 619, I know we've looked at this and this is a well-known passage, but it should, it just, it doesn't get old. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. God is with us and he's an anchor that does not leave us when we feel as though the chaos of the world or the uncertainty of the world is pulling us in all kinds of different directions. And so I think, what does this do for us? I think of a few examples. I think when we're confronted with grief, a grief that maybe is overwhelmingly numbing to us, we have that assurance that God has not abandoned us, that he has not left us alone. And it's the human condition or experience that at different times in our life, we will experience great grief and whether that's through people or events or circumstances where we can feel completely alone, we have that hope as believers that God has an unyielding desire to be with us. And that not only as we go through our greatest accomplishments, but our deep valleys through the shadow of death, there's a kind of hope that's an anchor for our soul, that God is there in our midst. Uh, I think of how, what does this do for us? I think also when we face uncertainty of, of different kinds, perhaps it's uh, in work, uh, perhaps it's in relationships or in family or in transitions in, in your lives, 
we have a hope that God is more than a, a distant watchmaker who's just wound up the clock and left us to figure it out. Because sometimes we've, I mean, I've had those conversations numerous times where you think, okay, in my life I've got option A and I've got option B. And if I choose option B, you know, did God really want me to do option A? And if I don't do option A, will I ever, will I be missing out on my, uh, the greatest plan for God, God's plan in my life? And, and there's a lot of anxiety around what that is, right? But God has given us a spirit to dwell in our midst, to the counselor, the, the guide uh, to help us in every situation that we face. And I know that for, for me, I guess you'd say recently, one of the, the greatest, you know, uh, transitions was leaving the ministry. And I, I, I know that many of you, or some of you, I shouldn't say many of you, some of you were, were nervous for me. And I could see that look on your face like, like, you're going to have to get a real job now. Like, like you have a family, Robert. Uh, like, let's just think about this for a second. Is this really what God wants you to do? And, uh, and it was key. I mean, you guys, it was wonderful. All right. You're so, so gracious. Um, but I know that's what you were thinking. Some of you for sure. Uh, but I can tell you this, as much as we want to control our lives and control our situations and avoid change and, and avoid other, you know, some things in our life. And one of the greatest comforts to me was God's assurance that he was with me. And again, he led me into this and he certainly was with me in it. And he's still with me, guiding uh, me. And it is just so freeing to know that no matter what we do, our greatest successes or our most spectacular failures, God is there with us. And I would say that when we're feeling, another example is when we're feeling dis, uh, Distant, and I would say maybe despondent. I don't want to say depressed, but maybe dis- despondent in our faith, where we're thinking, God, we know where are you, or what are you wanting me to do, or I just don't sense you. I sure I believe you're with me, but I don't really feel like you're with me. Uh, I, I think one of the greatest realities of the gospel, this is the greatest hope, is that God doesn't need us to do anything significant in order to be worthy of receiving his relentless desire to be with us. And again, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That um, we, are, we became the right to become the children of God and it's of doing absolutely nothing. And that is, uh, that is just a, a truth, a reality of the gospel that shouldn't get old for any one of us. And so it's incredibly inspiring, I think, and hopeful feeling that God doesn't actually need me to do anything because he redeems me and he relentlessly pursues me regardless of what I do or what I do not do for him. And I just, I know I've spoken on this before in, 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 uh, in the past, but I still think of that little voice of Zephaniah in Zephaniah three, where he just writes, our God is mighty to save. And we think, yes, God is mighty to save. And that's just the truth. We want to say yes to, um, but then he gets more personal and he says, but he, he takes great delight in you. And say, so, oh, the, the God of the cosmos takes delight in you. And he quiets you with his love and he rejoices over us with singing. And I think, isn't that just such an amazing picture that the God of the universe would even turn his attention to each one of us, regardless of what we ha- are bringing to the table. And, and I, I remember being, I guess now as I look back on it, I remember being uh, so captivated by that thought early in my faith that I just, I, I do remember praying that, you know, God, I just don't need you to do anything else. If, this, if you do nothing else in my life for the rest of my life, just all, I, I'll still believe in you. 
And I think that that's a, that's a funny prayer now to think of like, okay, God will say, yeah, okay, good. I got him. I'm done with him now on to the next person. I don't have to do anything else. Uh, it's a kind of a funny view, but it was true. And I, and I think um, that was only about uh, 20 years ago, but it's still a significant reminder of how important it is at some point in your life to be captivated about the, the mystery uh, uh, and the intrigue of how God works, uh, whether it's by just different aspects of his nature or how he works in other people's lives or how he weaves different seasons of your own life into such a, in such an interesting and unique way. Uh, we have to have a, 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 it has to pique our interest at some level. And I remember last week, Rod shared, uh, I think how he'd been a Christian for, was it 40 years? Or was it 40 years, Rod? Or was it 50? No, just kidding. Was it 40 years you, you, for being a Christian? Yeah, right? And uh, 40 years and how we go through different seasons of our life where we don't serve God or pursue him in ways that we know that we ought to. And I just think that that's just tremendous honesty. I think that that, you know, if we could have that kind of honesty in our lives, it would serve us well in developing a, a good relationship with the Lord. Because I think it's true of these postures that throughout different seasons of our life, we might find ourselves in, in each one of these postures. And there might be seasons of your life that if you're honest, you would say, I'm, I'm not captivated by God at all. And I know, I know this to be intellectually true. And I believe God. It's not a wavering faith. I just, I feel despondent. I just don't sense that God is, you know, and I believe the Holy Spirit resides in me, but I, I, I just got nothing. And, and I think that that is, that is fine to acknowledge that for what that is. Um, and I think we should take great comfort that there is a good portion of the Bible that describes people exactly like that. This is filled with a lot of people who, if they were, as you read it, they have very little interest in what God is doing and certainly in their life. And yet God is fine with that. And this is what's so fascinating again of how he works. He's completely fine with that. You, 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 I tell you to do this and you want to do that. That's fine. And you know what? If you want to wait three years, if you want to wait 40 years, if you want to wait 80 years, that's fine. Um, he has a way of drawing us back to himself in ways that we least expect it. And so I guess if, if you've heard these different postures described this morning, and maybe you've had, maybe you've had mixed feelings. I hope that some degree it has made you think, Oh, do I view God that way? And he's saying that's not helpful. I'm concerned. And maybe, maybe that would be true for you. And, and you feel like you identify too closely with one of those postures. Uh, and that's, I would just encourage you to think we have to discover the better way. Uh, we can't live our whole lives having a, 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 an inoculated view of who God is and just a little, a little dose of God saying, okay, that's all I need. Now I've got enough that I can use him to do this in my life. Right. And so I, there's a better way. And I started with that question is God, your treasure. And so I hope you think that this helps you think through, well, is he really, is my, he my all in all? Is he really my treasure? Or, or do I, or do I have a different view of him that really makes me think, I just wish he, he would do that for me. And if he did that for me, then my life would get me to my real treasure. And I just want to, maybe as like a seasoning salt or just to make you think of that. And, and we found it so, so helpful in our, uh, our Bible study group to, to go through it. And I'd encourage you to read it. Um, 
and, and dig into it a little bit more and ask yourself those questions. And so is God your treasure? If we have that proper view of who God is as, as our greatest pursuit, as our greatest treasure, then we would be able to share, I think, out of an abundant hope or an, a, an abundant faith, um, just a, an, an unwavering hope and uh, an extraordinary love to the people around us. And, and as much as uh, well, I said to the kids, you know, if, if you want God to forgive you, uh, you should forgive other people. And that's how other people can see that we know who God is. I think in the same is true that if we have this kind of hope, this firm, uh, secure hope as an anchor for our soul, people should be able to see that and say, well, you know, they, this isn't just somebody who, who likes the Bible. Like this person, like this changes how this person lives. They have a hope that like they've gone through extraordinarily difficult things in their life and, and it is an anchor for them. So there's something to this or this person has so much love and so much faith. There's, there's just has to be something to this God behind this. Uh, I think it, it would do a lot uh, for, for our witness uh, because people can very quickly see, oh, you're just using that to serve a, a different mean. And, and we can all see that fairly easily. And so I just, I, I want to leave that with you. I, I don't know how that resonates with you or how that doesn't, um, but I just trust that God will maybe use it to speak to you. And again, if you have any questions or you want a book um, I, I don't get, it's not like I get a percentage of the sales. I feel like a salesman, but I would just say, I would encourage you to do it uh, and, and to read it and dig into this and ask yourself that question. Is God really my treasure? Has he been? How do I, do I have a captivating view of who God is? So with that, I want us to pray and I want the, uh, I'll invite the praise team to come on up and we'll, uh, we'll end with our closing song. So let's pray together. God, I, I thank you so much for people who can speak truth into our lives, uh, people who love you so clearly and passionately, and, and, and different pastors and different authors. And uh, I thank you for this study that we were able to do with our group and how it just spurned us on to think differently about you and how uh, sometimes we get so accustomed to, to asking you for certain things in a certain way, expecting a certain result. And now we have our own ways of ultimately manipulating you to do what we want, to appease the fears and, and to gain control of our lives. And, and that's a human condition. Um, but even with our best intentions, God, we know that our hearts are, are desperately wicked, as Jeremiah said, and we don't always understand it. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, help us to not seek you for our own selfish gain, but to seek you because we have a clear view of who Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do and what he's done for us and what your Holy Spirit continues to do in our lives and the, the fascinating ways that you are active and at work in our lives. And we're just so thankful for that. But we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us greater clarity into who you are and as we look at your word, as we read it, and as many of us are, are familiar with it, I just ask that it would help us to see you more clearly. And as we treasure you, would it, would it stir up in us a hope and a faith and a love that others would find truly undeniable? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, 
You are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 10.30. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash templebaptistchurch or search on your favorite podcast app.